Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the EWN Radio Network. Welcome to On the Record with your host, Ashram Lux Lucis. All right, welcome to another episode of On the Record. I am your host, Ashram Lux Lucis, and today I have a very special guest in house, somebody who I went to college with way back in 1995, and, uh, Kind of ironically enough, that same person is now teaching at that college. In fact, beyond teaching, she's an associate professor. She's chair of the music media and industry department and director of the music business and entertainment industries program at the University of Miami. She also serves as vice president business solutions at Warner Music Group. And she's active in numerous music industry organizations, including recently holding leadership positions in the music and entertainment industry educators association the Recording Academy Florida Chapter, and the Florida Bar, Entertainment, Arts, and Sports Law Section. Previously consulted for several major music companies, including Sony Music Entertainment and Universal Music Group, and has worked at EMI. She's also directed several music industry conferences and has published numerous articles about the music industry. Her areas of expertise include contract summarization and management, rights management, royalties, mechanical licensing, record company operations, and music industry information management. And if that didn't wear you out, she's got a degree in finance from the University of Florida, a master's degree in music media and industry from the University of Miami, and she has her law degree from Brooklyn Law School, and she's also a member of the New York Bar and the Florida Bar. And I'm very excited about this interview because when we were in college together, she not only founded Kane Records, the student-run record label at University of Miami, got that going. But everything that this woman put her mind to, she did, and she just went full force. Nothing could stop her. And I just found that to be such an amazing quality, an amazing trait, and it's proved to be so useful over these years because if you read her resume, it's like reading a book. I mean, it's just amazing what she's accomplished and I'm so excited to dive in and hear how her life has unfolded over these past 20 years and kind of catch up and bring you all into the conversation. So without further ado, please welcome my very special guest, Serona Elton. <laughs> Hello. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. It is such a great blast from the past. Um, we have so much catching up to do, and I'm just thrilled and honored that you invited me to be a part of your show. Very much so. Yeah. Glad to have you for sure. So let's get inside of Serona. So where where did all this drive come from? Did you always want to be in the music industry? Were you driven as a child to be in the music industry? Or were there other areas and other things that you did that kind of groomed you for this? Oh, that drive was there from a very young age. Um, I remember when I was um, a child, probably around age seven or so, um, in North Miami, which is where I grew up, 
there was a very famous, it's still there, a very famous recording studio uh, called Criteria Criteria Recording Studio. It's now um, been absorbed into another studio brand, but it's still this iconic place. Um, in, and just about every classic rock track you can imagine was recorded there. And um, back when I was a child, my father was in the um, television commercial business, the production business, and he had a business office in the business wing of that recording studio complex. So you'd come in, there were the record, the studios themselves, but there was also like a wing of offices. So he had his office in that space. And one day I remember going to visit, you know, dad's office and the lobby of criteria was just unbelievably awe-inspiring as a child. It was literally like two stories high, wall-to-wall platinum records. Just unbelievable. And while I was sitting in the lobby waiting for Dad, um, along comes a limousine, and out pops Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees. Oh, and wow. I was just so blown away. I was a, you know, as much as a, excuse me, child can be a fan of the Bee Gees. I was a big fan of the Bee Gees. And just seeing him up close and personal is just amazing. And right from that whole moment, I just was, you know, in love with this whole music industry thing, music superstars and platinum records and recording studios. I just totally fell in love with it right from that point. And then coming up, you know, I realized um, probably only a few years later that I had absolutely no musical talent whatsoever. <laughs> there was, you know, a realization of that. Luckily, I realized that very young. And yet I still had this tremendous interest um, and passion for music um, and all that went into its creation. And so um, as, as literally as early as junior high, I started really getting interested um, and uh, started, you know, meeting different people who were involved in the music industry in Miami um, and there's even a photograph in my um, high school yearbook, I think probably 10th grade, where I'm holding in my hands a number of vinyl records, and it's a little article about, you know, sort of she wants to be a record mogul one day kind of thing, which is just really <laughs> funny if you think about that in, like, 10th grade. Um, and so then um, then I went to college, and I went to um, my, my bachelor's degree I did at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. And um, there is not really a music industry in Gainesville, Florida, frankly, but my interest was still there very much, and and um, there was no music industry major to pursue at the University of Florida, but there was um, two locally produced music video programs that aired on the local cable access television channel. I know this is like going way back. This is, you know, 1989 to 93. You know, local music video programs were still, you know, quite an important um, piece of the promotional pie for for music videos. So there were these two local music video programs. Um, one was an R&B show. One was a rap show. And on the R&B show, it was called um, Video Visions. <laughs> um, they had a music news segment every week. It was about five minutes. Um, that was on the air, and I was the, the newscaster. I would, you know, read the news. Um, and I also was involved in setting up interviews with artists that were coming through really anywhere in north or central Florida um, because the show would, you know, we'd send out one of our, our reporters, our little crew, and we would interview artists for an on-air interview. So 
that was almost, frankly, probably the most fun job I've ever had, and it didn't pay a cent, and it didn't give me academic credit. It was all just just for the love of it. Um, and I met amazing people in the music industry, and all of that just continued to reinforce, you know, the the decision that said this is definitely the field for me. So finished that degree and then said, look, no question, this is what I want but I need to really make sure that I'm ready for this industry. I want to learn everything there is to learn. And that's when I found the master's degree at the University of Miami. And that was easy because I was, you know, going to move back home to Miami anyway, at least as a, uh, you know, the next place after undergrad. So I realized the University of Miami had this master's program that you know very well because that was where we met. Mm-hmm. And it was such an obvious next step, which was to take this passion and interest that had been there really since childhood and had kept kind of becoming um, more and more of a reality over the course of high school and undergrad, that it made sense to go and pursue that that degree. And so there you have it. I started at University of Miami and um, and yeah, that, that gets us caught up to that time period. Yeah. Wow. Now, you know, you were doing like the interview thing. Did you ever think about going into broadcasting? It's funny, you know, I did at one point, and at one point I was talking to a guidance counselor at the University of Florida, you know, and we did actually talk about, well, hmm, what if I actually went into broadcast journalism? And it it was, I did like it a lot, um, and I suppose, you know, that spoke to a part of me that enjoys, you know, public speaking and, and that sort of thing, but it was just no question the music industry, the passion for that particular industry um, definitely, you know, was, was that much stronger than my interest in any other areas. So it, it definitely won out, but um, there have been times over the years that I have kind of said, hmm, I wonder if I'd have gone a different direction. Yeah, yeah. So what? tell me about, so how, why finance? Why did you choose finance? I mean, well, it's a great, it's so, a great, ma- yeah. you know, major. But well, I'll be just, very honest. I was not at all passionate about it. Um, <laughs> when I was going to the University of Florida, I thought, okay, you know, um, they don't have a music business degree. Okay, um, but I'm very interested in, you know, entertainment broadly, and so I actually was going to be a theater major. However, my parents were not going for that. They were like, <laughs> you know, my, my father having come up actually as a, as a cameraman and director of photography, not only just in TV commercials, but then very much also on major feature films and things. And, and having um, a family, particularly family in, in London, England, that were very involved in the arts and, and aunt, she was an actress, and my grandparents were both in the film business. You know, it, they know very much the nature of it being feast or famine, and they, there just was not going to be support for, you know, helping pay for a four-year degree in theater. They just were not going for it. So at that point, I was kind of like, look, well, I really want music business. That's not an option at this particular university. So let's see. Well, entertainment always involves money, right? Someone's going to get paid. Money's going to be a part of any part of the entertainment industry, um, and it is a business. And so at that point, it was kind of, well, what about maybe accounting or about finance? And finance just kind of won out. You know, I don't even remember how it won out over accounting, I suppose, but um, it did. <laughs> and there you have it. So I was like, right, I'll get a finance degree, perfectly respectable. Money is involved in everything, so how could it possibly hurt? Um, and and you know, that's why I chose that major. So nice. um, it was, you know, yeah, I was never 
particularly passionate about it. I mean, I, I find numbers very interesting, and I'm quite comfortable with numbers and even accounting. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> that was nice. how that got selected. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think probably, you know, finance is a little bit more exciting than accounting, you know. <laughs> it certainly seemed like it at the time. Yeah. You know, you were talking stocks and bonds and, you know, the, the right. kind of markets that way. It certainly, it certainly seemed more interesting at the time than debits and credits. <laughs> right. Yeah. Bean counting. <laughs> Right exactly. On. Although it's it's funny, way later on, I mean, even literally earlier today, I was having a phone call um, related to a project that I'm working on at Warner, where I was talking about debits and credits, and you know, ex- posting the expense versus the liability. And ironically, um, I actually have had far more exposure to accounting over the course of my career. So I probably would have been better off actually doing accounting, but in, mm. in the end, I've kind of picked up the knowledge, you know, just through practice. But um, yeah. finance itself, it's interesting. Finance as a concept at entertainment companies, if you meet somebody who is the head of finance or works in finance, they really have nothing to do with stocks and bonds and things like that. It really is accounting. It's forecasting. Mm. It's accounting, but we call them finance people. Um, we don't necessarily say you are the head of accounting, perhaps. Yeah. You know, um, even though it's not a finance in a pure kind of you know financial markets ma- uh, meaning. But so it's just interesting. If I could go back and do it again, I probably would have done accounting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so let's go to UM. So now we're at UM. We're we're in the master's program. How did you get the idea to start the record label, and how'd that come about? Well, I um I can't take any credit for the idea. Um, the idea was actually kind of um, put out to a couple of us grad students by the director of the program at the time, a professor named Jim Progress, who, if you've ever met, is quite a character, um, <laughs> which is an understatement, tremendous understatement, um, but a wonderful guy. Um, and he... He was very much in the know about what was happening at other music business programs around the country, and there were there were a number of them then, um, although nowhere near as many as there are now. And he had gotten wind that um, a university in Chicago, uh, or actually a college, Columbia College, I think it was in Chicago, had started a student record label, and that as far as he knew, that was the only one in existence, and that wouldn't it be a great idea if we did as well? And so he just kind of planted that seed, and then as is, you know, as is um, not that unusual for Jim, he kind of planted it and walked away to see what would happen. And we all kind of grabbed onto that and said, this is a great idea. Let's do it. And so, you know, there was a number of us who all kind of said, let's get this thing together. Let's make it happen. And, you know, then the ball started rolling, and we came up with a name, and, you know, we went through the – the fun of trying to get the general counsel's office at the university to let us do this, which is, you know, I'm, I still am amazed how we managed to get them to do that. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we really kind of all made this our mission um, and, and really dove in head first. So it really, it was him saying to us, Hey, have this other school has done this. We should do this, but never talking about, like, what does that mean? How would it operate? How would that work? It Literally, he was just like, there's another school. They have a student record label. You guys, what do you think? Maybe we should do one? And then he just kind of dropped it on our laps to say, well, let's see if they're going to run with it. 
And then, of course, he was very supportive, um, tremendously supportive in helping us get through red tape and everything we needed to do to get it running. Um, but it was really us, a group of students that, that ran with that. So I was one of the founders, not the founder, one of a handful of founders. Yeah. So you're coming together now. You've got personalities. You're coming together with people. And um, you're trying to do this thing that probably none of you really had too much of a clue about how to do. What were some of the dynamics that's for sure. that happened in there, and how did you work through those dynamics? You know, because that's always like, like even with like with a band, you have the band dynamics, and that's usually what breaks the band up. You know, <laughs> so right, right, and the, the, the dynamics are everywhere. It's just that's life. It's, it's, life is relationship. So how did you work through all that? Well, it's funny, you know. I mean, I don't know. It's interesting how the mind does these things to you over the years. Where um, I tend to just. I tend to just hold on to sort of summary level memories. Does that make sense? <laughs> Rather than all of the granularity. So in my mind, I look back and I say, there weren't any personality conflicts. It was fine. <laughs> now, maybe there were, and I've just blocked them all out. I mean, you know, there was different, there, there were individuals certainly were, we all had quite diverse backgrounds and quite diverse personalities. Um, you know, uh, and we struggled with all the things that happen when you have a group of people coming together where, you know, nobody can is really the boss of anybody else. You know, you just kind of have to find a way to work together. Um, and, you know, as is with any team, you'll find that some people tend to do a lot of the work and other people tend to do not as much of the work. You know, it's not always equally distributed if you have four people that each are doing, you know, a quarter of the work. Um, and different people have different strengths and weaknesses. So it was it was interesting because unlike just, let's say, a you know, a class project here, you know, you guys go work on this little report and you'll present it for a grade at the end of the semester, you know, we really knew that this was – this is a business. Now, I mean, I say all that to say, you know, none of us obviously put any money into it of, out of our own pockets in terms of an investment. We didn't have investors breathing down our throats or anything, but we realized this was way beyond just a class project. This was serious. This was business. This was doing something in the name of the University of Miami. And so we were extremely passionate about it and <clears throat> extremely driven and focused. You know, it became like a almost 24-7 kind of thing, we, we could not let this fail. So, um, you know, I don't have any any memories of, like, any big blow-ups or anything like that. I'm sure there were times where there were disagreements. Um, but I, I I think overall, though, everybody kind of brought what they had to bring to the table, and we got along really well, um, you know, and a lot of people – kind of created friendships that lasted a long time. Um, two two of the early members ended up getting married, uh, Susie and John, um, mm. if they're listening. They ended up getting <laughs> married. Um, and, you know, it, it was a lot of really good bonds that were built. Um, and I don't really remember any, like, big personality issues. <laughs> maybe you do, but I don't. <laughs> uh, maybe that's yeah. my revisionist history. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I just remember, like, you just being like a workaholic like I was yeah, amazed that's not like, I'm like when where does sleep fall into the picture for her you know like how well, does she you know <laughs> I'm laughing for several reasons one of which is that um if, if the people I'm working with like today on what I'm working with today hear this which they will because they will hear this show 
they will just laugh so hard to say, wow, she has not changed one bit <laughs> since college because they ask me that kind of question, you know, regularly. Like, when do you sleep? How do you do this? And I say, oh, no, no, it's just this project right now. It's not normally like this. But then if I really look back and I go, well, actually, no, it's always like this, isn't it? I'm always somehow taken on possibly more than any reasonable person would want to. And then once I say yes, once I commit, I take my commitment extremely seriously. I just have to stop committing to so many things. Um, so, yeah, not a lot of sleep. I am definitely a, a workaholic. That's, that's, a fair, that's a fair label. <laughs> we'll be right back. I'm looking for a certain kind of woman, and I think you know her. She's an entrepreneur that is highly connected, successful, significant in her own industry, and considered the go-to woman in her community. She's received so much from so many women in business, she's ready to give back to others on their journey, lifting as she climbs. Hi, this is Sandra Yancey, and I'm the founder and CEO of eWomen Network. I'm looking to connect with the woman I've just described who lives in your community so that we might have a conversation about how eWomen Network's proven success system can provide her a platform to elevate her success and ability to support women in business. Our international community of managing directors are influencing the speed of success for women in business around the world. If that sounds like something that you want to be part of or know someone we should talk with, send an email to managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. That's managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. And let's start the conversation. And we're back on the record. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So how, you know, how does that support you in your life? I mean, how... um, I mean, you know, 20 years of that and probably even a little bit before that, you know, do you feel like your battery's yeah. burning out? I mean, what's what's going on for you in that aspect in life? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I look at each week as its own unique cycle. And if you ask me that question at different times during the week, you might get a very different answer. <clears throat> so we're conducting this interview now rather late in the week. And um, my voice is, is is showing the evidence of having done way too much talking all week long. So it often starts struggling to keep up with the demand by the end of the week. So um, if you ask me by a typical Friday, um, am I burnt out? The answer would be an absolute yes, completely fried, you know, ready to drop. If you ask me on like a Monday morning, you know, I might – have my batteries just coming out of a, you know, recharge over the weekend and I'm not on empty yet. So it does change over the course of the week. And, and truthfully over the last 20 something years of my career, it has not been an insane pace all the time. Um, You know, there's been periods of time where I was working, uh, you know, insane amount of hours. There was a time period when I was at, um, at EMI where I was working probably a a 60 hour a week job on a huge project. And at the same time I was going to law school four nights a week. So that was probably the time period where I was working the hardest in terms of lack of sleep and just, you know, kind of insane amount of work. But that was, you know, that was a particular period of time. And then there were times after that when it's been, you know, far quieter, just normal, normal work. Um, there's been times when, uh, since I've been at the university, 
where if I haven't been doing consulting or anything and I was just teaching, then that was one level of work versus teaching and doing a lot of outside work, which was definitely, you know, far more demanding. So it's kind of, you know, gone up and down over the years. Um, Right now I happen to be in um, a phase that's very similar to the one I was in when I was at EMI and, you know, working 60-hour weeks and going to law school. I've found myself on this particular project that is kind of demanding those sorts of hours where I'm doing all of my university obligations and working many, many hours to um, to manage this other project. And so it is right now it is in that kind of, you know, insane hours kind of mode, but it won't stay this way. There, this project will have a date that ends and then there will be a time period where it starts looking normal again for a while, but I'd be crazy to think that there will never come a time in the future where I'll mm. see myself in the same kind of insane workload, although I'm hoping, you know, maybe I'll learn my lesson this time around and say, never again <laughs> will I end up in a position like that, but we'll see. We'll see. Well, what do you think it is that drives you to do that? You know, I mean, that's that's something inside. I mean, that's a pattern, obviously, because you've been doing it for so many years now. What do you? What is it that gets inside mm. you that that makes you just go after all this? Well, I think it's you know, I like a challenge. You know, I I um I feel like I grow and I expand my skill set the most when I am being challenged and Mm -hmm. so I like it seems a little crazy but the notion of taking on something that you know looks like it's going to be a very difficult task um, or it's maybe a task that it doesn't look like anybody else can you know manage to pull off I like that challenge um, because you know being able to accomplish it is a very satisfying feeling um and sometimes you know you really refine your skills when you're under real pressure um you know you can't you don't have the luxury of kind of doing something six times over till you get it exactly right if you're under the gun you just think really you know fast and smart and efficient and you know kind of I think you can you can acquire skills quite quickly that way. So I, it's funny because I don't seek these out; they just kind of find me. <laughs> I kind of end up somewhere on in some role where it was never it was never the plan that I would be taking on a huge amount of the work, and then it just works out that way. <laughs> and you know, for lots of different reasons. You know, whether it's just there's not enough other resources, those resources become not available or those resources just aren't enough to get it done and they need more. Um, It's never kind of like, hey, this project looks crazy. I would love to do this. Um, No, it's usually more like, hey, can you get involved in this in a small way? Oh, wow, we need so much help. Oh, my gosh, I think you're the right person for the job. Um, So it kind of it kind of doesn't kind of just lands on my lap as opposed to me seeking it out. So when you're in these projects now and you're you're going and you're going, when you come up against obstacles and challenges, how do you get around those? Cuz you now you're you're kind of like you're you're under the gun, you're kind of you're pressured, so you know, you're you're not getting enough sleep, so you're not functioning at full capacity, you know, just physically. <laughs> yeah. So what mm. happens when you come up against these things and you, but you still got to push through and you've still got to, you know, be civil and whatnot. 
<laughs> How do you manage that stuff? It's, it's difficult. <laughs> it is it is difficult. Um, definitely, the, I think there's a direct relationship between the less sleep you've had and how short your fuse is. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think I think a couple things. I think that one of the ways that I cope with it is that when you're not actually doing it, you try not to think about it because sometimes the dread is worse than the thing itself, right? It's kind of like, you know, you've got to go to the dentist for a cleaning or something. You're like, oh, I hate that. Oh, my gosh. But then when you get there and you're in it, you're just there in it, you're like, okay, but it's just, it's and then it's almost over. Like, it's like sort of the buildup to it can be very, you know, can really push down upon you. And if you try not to think about it too much other than when you are in it, you then are so busy in it that you don't have time to stop and sit back and go, gosh, this really sucks. <laughs> You're too busy to even think about <laughs> the fact that it sucks, like if that makes any sense. So when I, yeah. when I have downtime, I'm down. Like when I am off the radar, off the clock, which is frankly a very, very small number of hours a day right now, <laughs> when I am, I'm not I'm not thinking about it. I'm not thinking about it. Like, for example, when the alarm clock goes off, I try not to have the first thought I think about is the massive list of stuff I have to get done that day because mm. I will get out from under the covers, right? That, that <laughs> feeling is so overwhelming that you're thinking, I just, I can't. I just can't get up. Instead, I'd rather just say, okay, I need some coffee. I need to take a shower. And that's what I think about, right? I just think about the next thing. Okay, I've got to be on the computer and on the phone by 9. Okay, now now I am at work. Now I will take a minute and think about all the things I have to get done today. But if I thought about that when I went to bed the night before, if I thought about that when I first woke up in the morning, I wouldn't have slept and I wouldn't have gotten out of bed. So you kind of have to acknowledge that it may be overwhelming and realize that when you are – deep in it, you may not even have the time, the luxury of feeling overwhelmed. You're just like in triage mode. Like you're just like reacting, right, um, mm. versus reflecting upon it. Um, if you imagine like a triage nurse in an ER with people coming at you constantly and you're like, okay, you know, broken arm, go to the, you know, bed three, uh, bleeding this, go to bed two. You're so busy just coping with what's coming at you that you don't get to step back and go, God, this waiting room's full of people and I don't know how I'm going to get through it. <laughs> you don't have time to think that. You, you're, yeah. you just have to go, 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 right? So I find when you do have huge amount on your plate that if you step back and look at it, you think there is just no way um, is to not, this sounds bad, but don't sit back and spend too much time thinking that because it, mm. it'll become, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Just at least think about what's the next thing you have to do. And then, then what do you have to do? What do you have to do today? And what do you have to do this week? And what has to get done this month? What has to get be done in the next two weeks? Like take it in chunks rather than looking at, the whole of it in one thought because it'll be paralyzing. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, that's my crazy coping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us how do you shut the mind off from that? Cause like, you know, and, and do you do like brain dumps where you like, you'll just sit with a pen and paper, write down everything that's in your mind, get it out. And then like, yeah. how do you, how do you clear that yeah, out? I think that's a very, to... that, that is a very, very um, helpful exercise especially if you can't sleep at night because you've got you know lists going on in your head 
just get the list on paper, and now you know that you can go to bed and you can go to sleep. So, yes, I do sometimes just have brain dumps of everything that's on my mind so that it's captured somewhere, right? Um, but other than that, when I'm, like, officially, you know, giving myself downtime, like I might, you know, for a little while on the weekend or – even if it's now midnight, I finally got off the phone, shut the computer, but my brain is still too wired to just fall straight asleep. Um, I, you know, I'll read a book. I'll watch one of my favorite TV shows, like just get some distance between work and sleep, for example. Because um, I find if you don't, it's much harder to shut the mind off. Mm. So to me, you know, a good chapter in, in a favorite book or a book I'm trying to read very slowly um but a chapter in a book you know or a tv show or you know uh, something like that that just takes my mind completely out of my life i find then is a good like buffer between work and sleep and even you know um work and just personal life right just like switch your brain over to something else um that that will be immersive so, for example, I know a lot of people will exercise, like they'll say they'll go to the gym and they'll, or they'll go for a run, whatever, or listen to music perhaps. Um, to me, those don't do it for me in terms of getting my brain out of my work because they don't fully engage your mind enough. Like mm. when you're listening to music, your mind can wander. When you're at mm-hmm. the gym just on the treadmill, your mind can wander. If I'm reading one of like the authors that I'm a really big fan of from a book point of view, my mind is not wandering. I'm completely absorbed and I love it. Mm. Right? If I'm watching one of my favorite TV shows, it's my favorite because I love to lose myself in it. So to me, I think the kinds of activities you need to cope with the stress in terms of being able to get some distance from it have to be like immersive. They have to take you away from your life, take you completely out of it, not just like partially engage your mind, but just absorb you completely, pull you in. So that then an hour later you feel like, wow, that workday seems so long ago, even though that was only 30 minutes ago. It's just totally different. You just shut your brain off, shut that part down, right? So that's what I find. I need something that takes my, totally takes my mind and pay, takes it someplace else. Wow. So I'm scared to ask you this. Do you have a meditation practice? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm afraid I don't. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> so what do you do like to just totally shut the mind? Because even when you're reading or you're watching TV, the mind is still engaged. So do you have any kind of practice that you do at all that just totally shut your mind off other than sleeping, which is actually not no. shutting it off either. Cause you're drinking. <laughs> Honestly, just sleep. No, yeah. only sleep. <laughs> I'm afraid yeah. not. I'm afraid yeah. not. No, I, I don't. And I know there's huge value in that. I just have never managed to work that into my, into my life. I support yeah. the idea. It's on my, you know, to do list, get around to looking into that kind of thing. It just never happened. It's on the bucket list. <laughs> Exactly. I'm going to become a great meditator when I retire. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, which will be at like, what, 95? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. One of my mottos for business owners is, you can't do it alone. Whether you're in the startup stage of your business or you're scaling, you can't grow without relationships to provide support, wisdom, and new customers. eWomen Network is your home to connect with other women entrepreneurs who have been where you are or are experiencing the same challenges. We have chapters across the U.S. and Canada that have monthly events featuring our trademarked process called Accelerated Networking. 
to ensure you get the contacts, resources, and leads you need to grow your business. And once you become a member, you get many benefits, including two one-on-one coaching sessions, unlimited access to our membership database, your own personal profile page, and discounts on products and services with our business partners, such as UPS and American Express Open. Join the eWomen Network community and let us help you live your dream. For details, visit eWomenNetwork.com. And we're back on the record. Being that you're on the business side and you're part of the big machine, you know, there's this big movement in the DIY type of thing and all that. And even though I'm an artist, I, I, I really don't buy it. Like I still see that you need the machine because, yeah, you know, I think so. I, I've been trying for 30 years to do it without the machine and I haven't gotten too far because it takes lots of money because you need to put all that money into marketing and promoting yourself. And you just, you can't do that. You know, if you're just playing, while you're some also local being club. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This is too much. So we're, and, and then you have all this like streaming music and people are stealing music. And where do you see the current state of the music industry as far as both from the business side and from an artist side, both a major artist and an unknown artist? What are ways that they can engage this system to to make it to their benefit? Because even major artists are, are, you know, they're not seeing CD sales like they used to. And what are they doing to get money? And, and how are they engaging? Right. I know a big thing is with the touring, but what are some other things mm-hmm. available? Well, let's start with the, the DIY um, topic first. Yeah, so I agree. I think I think you do need the machine. But, but here's my, like, my, my more complete take on it. I think it is a very good thing for um, an up-and-coming artist to first try the DIY route because I think it exposes them to the complexities that are involved in actually becoming a successful artist, not necessarily with the eye to doing it to say, I am going to just be DIY forever on my own, which might be fabulous. I mean, you know, more power to you. But even if nothing else, make it a learning experience to understand kind of crash course on how some of this stuff works. But I do think that to go to the next level, to go from sort of, you know, dabbling and not making a living at it to being able to live off of revenue generated from just being an artist, you do need a team behind you. Now, that team could come in the form of something called a record label or, you know, and a manager, or that team could be a, a team of people that, you know, um, a DIY artist hand selects themselves and, you know, pays. That's the problem, right? In that you're not going to be able to assemble your own team of people. And by team, I mean, you know, not only a manager, but, you know, um, a, a head of marketing, a head of accounting, you know, um, a, a person that's going to handle the production of your music in terms of in the studios as, in the studio as well as actually putting together the complete package that will be your album. Um, somebody who knows how to get it distributed, a publicist, all of those roles need filling, right? Somebody mm-hmm. has to do them all. And you could put together a team of independent people to do that, but they're not going to do it for free. And they're not going to do it just because you promised to pay them some percentage of what you may or may not ever make. 
you know, if you are a DIY artist and, you know, you had like a rich uncle, um, if that's something like Mitt Romney said or somebody, if you have a rich <laughs> uncle, then, yeah, you could say, I'm going to put together this team. I'm going to pay these people by the hour or give them like a retainer or something. And they're going to do all the functions that a record label would normally do, but they're going to do it just for me. And I'm DIY. You could do that, right, if you had the bankroll for it. But mm-hmm. most people don't have a rich uncle and don't have that kind of bankroll. And in which case, you know, there is that challenge. How, who is going to carry out all these functions if, you know, if you really want to be, take it to the next level in terms of success and building an audience while you're also just trying to be an amazing musician, right? Like, you know, if yeah. you're trying to be a – if you have plans to be an artist, you want to be an artist, you're probably also a songwriter, you want to be practicing your music. You want to be writing. You want to be doing creative things. You don't necessarily want to be sitting on, you know, TuneCore or CD Baby trying to figure out how to upload this and upload that and the other, right? That's not that's not like an inherent interest of an artist. <laughs> um, yeah. You want to focus on your craft, your talent, your art. Um and, you know, you'd rather have other people who are great at marketing, you know, a publicist who's great at writing a press release. You'd rather have those people use their skills to support what you are creating. So I think that I think the DIY movement really kind of took off when when digital distribution became the norm and there were mechanisms in order uh, that were put in place to make it easy for a DIY artist to get their music on the digital shelf, right? Once iTunes came along, there was no limit in shelf space. That was no problem. Unlimited mm-hmm. shelf space. So, okay, you have your intermediaries, your CD Baby and and TuneCore and others now that can get anybody's music on iTunes and on Spotify. But that doesn't mean anybody will ever buy it because they would never have heard of you. Because if you don't have marketing, and marketing takes a lot of skill, experience, and money, they would not have heard of you. So just because your music is, quote, unquote, like in the store doesn't mean anyone's going to buy it. And so there was, you know, a huge amount of excitement, you know, around this whole DIY notion. You know, the the whole book, The Long Tail, came out, and, and everybody said, this is this is it. Like, record companies are going to be dead. Everyone's going to do their own stuff. Who needs a record company? And there you have it, except that several years later, everybody realized that actually the main people telling you how awesome it is to do, do to be DIY are those intermediaries <laughs> who are making money off you when you do that. Um, and that actually a lot of DIY musicians aren't making a living at all. Um, there was some statistic that I won't get the number right, not even close, but there was a statistic put out by SoundScan a number of years back that sort of said like, you know, of the, I'm going to make this number up, but let's pretend that there was 85,000 new albums put out last year. I'm making this up in the whole country. And like 83 of them, 83,000 of them sold less than a hundred units. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm like mm-hmm. insane number where you're saying, yeah, you're way out in that long tail, like way out in the long tail. And is that mm-hmm. really where you want to be? And if you want to be at the head of that long tail, that's not going to happen without a team because you mm-hmm. need somebody to financially invest and fund the team, and you need people who know what they're doing, right? There's something to be said for experience. So I do think that up-and-coming, you know, I think recording artists need record labels because I think record labels bring all of that 
to bear. They bring the financing, they bring the expertise, and and I think that that's that's proven out. Um, yeah, there's certainly challenges facing record labels and artists today um, in terms of the revenue streams, but. I still, in my opinion, and I'm obviously biased, I'm obviously very pro-record company, right? I mean, I started a record company, I've worked for record companies, that's no surprise, but but that's the reason why. And, and when I teach my students about how the recorded music industry works, I actually don't say over and over in class, the record company, the record company, I say, this is the job, it's got to get done, somebody has to do it. If you have the money to put together your own TV people to do it, Awesome. If you don't, maybe maybe a record company would want to invest in you, and they have a team. Somebody's got to do it. It's just mm-hmm. a question of where you find that person. So, so uh, I do very much, obviously, believe in record companies. Um, g- going to your other question about the industry and the challenges in terms of revenue and and you know things like that. All the statistics are out there. They're well known. You know, recorded music revenue has definitely declined sharply, you know, since 2000. Um, But, you know, we've seen a lot of changes, and I think there's a lot of um, excitement right now because of where things are going. You know, physical products um, in terms of CDs, they continue to decline, and they will continue to decline. I don't think they'll go to zero for a while in terms of generationally. There is still a generation of people that buy CDs. Um, yeah. And they're, you know, I look, I bought the Adele CD like three days ago. I bought the CD. Yeah, I, I wanted the CD. Darn it. I buy, I, I buy CDs because I like quality, you know. MP, exactly. MP3 sounds horrible. You know, I want I want that physical disc, you know. Yeah. And and we're not even, you know, we're, we're, we're what, we're middle-aged now or something? I don't even know what you call us, but... <laughs> you know, we're not going anywhere for a good long time, right? So so CDs are not going away completely. And in some genres, they're far more, you know, of the way people like to consume their music, you know. Um, so CDs are not going away, but they will continue to decline and then get at some point that, you know, they'll probably stay out for a while. Vinyl is tremendously on the, uh, on the upswing, which just cracks me up. I mean, I think it's yeah. fabulous. But I laugh when my students are like, look at this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I had vinyl when I was a kid. Like, really? Um, like, they've discovered something new. But I'm, yeah. I'm all for it. I think it's fabulous. I think it's funny. Um, but it's fabulous and funny. So, you know, but so so downloads, obviously, you know, very much took their time and, and started climbing. And eventually, you know, we we. Did that flip? I think it was around 2011 where finally um, digital and physical were about equal, and then digital became more of the way music was distributed than physical. Um, and now, you know, so so that was kind of the download revolution, and now we're in the um, the streaming sort of access model revolution, right? So this is like the second kind of revolution in my mind since 2000 or so, mm-hmm. where. You know, people are quite happy not to own the content outright, have forever, do it, you know, take it wherever you want with you. But they're quite happy to sort of have access to what they are interested in, and which, you know, I think is a very exciting thing because um, it has the potential to really increase revenues in the industry as more and more people um, decide to consume music that way. It's it's a, one of those strange things where because of the way the financial models work in that industry, uh, in, sorry, in this particular mechanism of distribution, you know, the more subscribers there are, 
um, and the more streaming that's happening, on the whole, the entire pie gets larger and larger. So there's some interesting, you know, excitement there going on, and I think there is lots of money being made in streaming, um, lots and lots of money. And so it was funny, I was sitting in something just yesterday at the university, and, and this happens, right? When everybody's talk, Whenever somebody's talking about a disruptive technology or a disruption somehow to something mm-hmm. that has been a certain way for a long time, um, like, for example, there's, you know, disruption going on. And disruption is not a negative thing. It just means, you know, significant change. But mm-hmm. a, a disruption in the way, um, you know, educational content is delivered and online education, all of that. People always love, love to say, look what happened to the music business. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's always what yeah. they say. And it always kills me because they usually actually are people that really have no idea how it really all went down and what mm-hmm. it looks like now. All they know is they go, well, see, there was the unbundling. You know, people stopped buying albums and people wanted to buy tracks. And they always make it sound like, like at that point, like it was like the di- dinosaur asteroid. Like Napster came, it landed, and all record labels went extinct. Like that's the way I think they think sometimes. Yeah. And I'm like, not, not quite, not quite yet. <laughs> There was lots of pain. I have friends that were laid off, like, you know, which is a very real thing. Um, and, and absolutely, there was a huge decline in revenue, and there was, you know, lots of consequences from that, lots of negative consequences for those who relied on that revenue stream to make a living. But everything didn't fold. It wasn't a mass extinction event, right? We still have three huge major global record companies that are all doing just quite well, right? They're all making money. And the indie music uh, world, the indie record label world, is is flourishing because for the indie labels, it they are benefiting from the fact that there is unlimited shelf space, which is one of their challenges before. But because mm-hmm. they have, you know, put together the right kind of business in terms of the the team and the money, you know, they're really able to make amazing things happen that would have been much harder for an indie label, you know, 20 years ago. So I think, I think there's a lot of good news. Um, there's no question that, that there's been a huge amount of change. But believe me, if you look at, you know, the money that your Lady Gaga's and your Bruno Mars and your Adele's and your Taylor Swift's are making, they're making a lot of money. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of money being generated by the revenue from their recordings, no question. There is another class of musician, of artist, that is not, you know, benefiting from these new models um, and is having a much harder time making a living um, in terms of from recorded music, absolutely, um, because I think there's kind of like a threshold above which if you aren't able to invest in a lot of marketing, you won't see a lot of return. And that involves, you know, a lot of money up front. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the other thing is that there's a lot of um, musicians who have perhaps made a very good living as a session player for artists whose sessions are being funded by big budgets, uh, big recording budgets from yesteryear. And, you know, when those budgets all kind of shrank, a lot of those folks, you know, started losing work in terms of playing sessions. Um, Recording studios, a lot of them scaled way back, went out of business, a lot of music engineers out of work. So I don't want to make it sound like there hasn't been any negative 
consequences of the change in the industry. There's been hugely negative, horrible things, lots of people out of work and not people think the only people impacted were like, you know, the big, big checkbooks of the big companies. But behind those companies are people that are employees that get paychecks that have, mm-hmm. you know, families to feed and kids to put in school and all that. And they're the ones who actually feel the impact. Um, and I know many directly. So lots of, lots of pain through the last 15 years, but I think there's also lots, lots of good. You know, when I go to work at Warner and as I have at Sony and anywhere else, you don't walk in every day and see a bunch of people who feel depressed and go, oh, this is not going well. Not at all. They're as excited about music as ever, you know, very excited. So many cool new things that you can do with, with music and with creating the relationship between the artist and the fan these days that you couldn't do before. So I think, I think there is, you know, there's a lot to be hopeful about and be, be positive about. Absolutely. So how, how are the labels benefiting from streaming? Well, I mean, they get revenue from streaming, right? Just like they did from downloads and they do some CD sales. The labels get revenue from streaming. Um, and, you know, it, it, the same way that a sale of, um, of CD resulted in money going to the label and the label would pay the artist and money going to the music publisher and the music publisher would pay the songwriter. Those revenue streams are still there with streaming. They're different in terms of um, how the money is routed where, and they're different in terms of the particular royalty rates and how those royalty rates are determined. Um, And they're even different about whether you're talking about what we'll call interactive or on-demand streaming, which is like Spotify or YouTube, as opposed to what we call non-interactive streaming, which is be more like Pandora or Sirius XM. Um, those have different models in terms of how those service providers are authorized to make the content available in terms of how the royalty rates are set and who pays who and then how that money moves along the chain. There's lots of differences, but record companies, you know, they get revenue when streaming is occurring, whether it's on demand or whether it's non-interactive. They're, they're getting paid just like artists and publishers and songwriters all are getting paid. Do I see a book in your future? No. <laughs> no? No. Not no, going to take that one on, huh? I, uh, mm, not anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> no time soon. Maybe awesome. one day in the future, but no time soon (laughs) nice well Serona we're near the end and I usually ask our guests to share some final words of wisdom if there's anything you can Mm. even give us more than you already have (laughs) final words of wisdom I have nothing left no um final (laughs) words of wisdom final words of wisdom um I don't have anything all that profound you know, something is just going to come out kind of silly. It's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, strive to be awesome. Like, don't accept that something is just good enough. Every, everywhere I go all day, and I'm just one of those hypersensitive people, I see all the things that don't work well. I see them everywhere, right? You know, you'll go get your coffee, and you're like, you can just look behind the counter at Starbucks and go, that's not working very efficiently, right? Or that was kind of dumb. Or, you know, like I was at Macy's shopping over, you know, the holiday weekend and the escalator wasn't working. So one of them wasn't working. So they pushed everybody to the elevator. And I'm like, really? You're going to handle everybody, six people at a time? To, that's, 
you know, come on, like, turn off the escalator, let people use it like stairs. Like, it was just one of those things that I look at and I go, that's not being done well. Um, And I just think people should really strive to do things well. Do it really well. Don't just do it kind of, eh, that's okay. You know, um, we need more people who care more about what they're doing and care about doing something in a really smart, really efficient, really awesome way. Um, And so I would just say um, strive to be awesome. Um, That would be my words of wisdom. (laughs) Well, folks, that wraps up another episode of On the Record. Tune in next week.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.